Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 89 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and this week I learned that the phrase the bee's knees has nothing to do with bees or indeed knees. Shut up, what, what does it mean? Right, harking back to uh, Shakespeare, good old Billy Waggle stuff, as ever, the phrase the be all and end all then got shortened to the bees and knees. And then the faster you say it, the more it sounds like the bee's knees. I thought it was because they did that little rubbing thing. When like a, like the waggle dance. Pollinating shiz. No. I thought it was just a rhyming thing. Well, there you go. Every day's a school Learned. day. Yeah. <laughs> we learn. What about the dog's bollocks, Mick? That's just because they're great. <laughs> I'm Hannah Dunleavy, and I forgot that my oven was broken, and I went shopping, and now I've got a shitload of food I can't eat. Oh, that sucks. Yeah. Raw Dinner. pizza for dinner, anyone? <laughs> oh, you can't cook that on a hob. You can't no. boil a pizza. I did try and work out <laughs> if I could grill it, but I thought that was a bit... You can get the one side done, but the other side's going to be a nightmare. Do you have a yeah. microwave? I do. You can't microwave pizza. I mean, you can. You it's can. just not that nice. If you get desperate. I was thinking about getting one recently, but I mean, this is not an interesting story. Shall I crack on? <laughs> um, what did my, you get my, instead? I had a microwave for years that my dad stole from a psychiatric hospital. True story. <laughs> we'll just leave it there. Okay. Bing. <laughs> <laughs> on that bombshell, I'm Jen Offord, and I now own a bread knife. And yeah, I know, it's uh, no one likes to show off, do they? I just want you to stop waving it in my face, Jen. That's all, that's all I'm asking for. <laughs> Later on, Alliance for Choices' Danielle Roberts gives me the latest on reproductive and gay marriage rights in Northern Ireland, now that the October the 21st deadline has passed. I speak to former Conservative, now Lib Dem MP, Heidi Allen, about, well, about what might happen this week, what might come next with Brexit, and how you can help make a people's vote more likely, if that's what you want. And I'm guessing it is, or you would have stopped listening to us ages ago. Yes, very much the wrong vibe. (laughs) (laughs) I talked to author Kieran Millwood Hargrave about her book, The Deathless Girls. Spoiler alert, it's brilliant. I really want to read it. And in Jenny Off the Blocks, and I'm a bit bored of saying this now, I'm talking racism in football. And it's Hello Snowstorm, Hello Split Screen, Goodbye Logic, as Dunleavy Does Disaster, Does Airport. Wowzers. Yeah. Wowzers. And then if you could just insert a split screen shot of me just going, wowzers. Over you saying wowzers. Yeah, yeah, totally. I'm imagining it. Sort of like early days Hollyoaks, if you remember that. No. no. <laughs> but first, empty ditches, a brighter future done better, and the tiniest of silver linings. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue stink. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, and also the winter of our discontent. Well, someone who's definitely got the hump at the moment is our Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, as his brilliant super mega leave deal failed to make it through the Commons. What does this mean? Well, for Johnson, it means choking back humble pie and seeking an extension from the EU via an unsigned letter that he vowed never to pursue. Didn't a certain somebody say something about being dead in a ditch? Mm -hmm. That probably explains a second letter he decided to send. This one was signed and everything to President of the European Council, Donald Tusk, in which he said, a further extension would damage the interests of the UK and our EU partners and the relationship between us. So it's clear as mud what he wants then. He is such a douche, and I realise that's not news, but I did need to say it. What I did decide to do is have a nose at how American newspapers are reporting Brexit, and this from the New York Times made me laugh. Just a note that pretty much all laughter on this subject is hollow. Anyway... The turbulent events threw British politics once again into chaos with any number of outcomes possible. (laughs) I'm just going to assume that they've been recycling that sentence since 2016 because the cap surely fits. 
Okay, what are those possible outcomes? The big three are as follows. A no-deal exit, a people's vote, or a general election that could shift the balance in Parliament. Yep, here we are again. Here we are still. Hollow laughter. So my fact this week was almost going to be just like the shrugging emoji. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I watched quite a lot of it on Saturday because... None of us are well enough to be in the streets, are we? So um, I had to do what I can just by watching it on television. Parliament, that is. And uh, it's still such utter nonsense. The fact that this letter wasn't signed and they said it was just a photocopy, that's not true. Because I've seen both copies being circulated on Twitter by reputable organisations, you know, like Best for Britain, which I feel the need to say again, sounds like one of those Facebook people who send you things about racism, but they're not... And it's in two different fonts, so it's obviously not a photocopy, but it's just lie upon lie upon lie. I mean, not signing it is slightly better than what I thought they would do, which was to say, oh, I have my fingers crossed behind my back. Ah. Yeah, I renounced the devil. Didn't really, <laughs> yeah. didn't really renounce the devil. Hang yeah. on, can you explain this to me? He didn't sign it, does that mean it doesn't count? No, it means it does count. Okay. It means, it means he's, he's just, just he was being okay. a sloppy child. so he's just a cunt, yeah. Yeah. which we already knew. But yeah, like I said, good, not good news, to have yeah more confirmation, more com- further confirmation. Definitely wasn't needed. <laughs> okay. yeah. And it was all so, the things before the vote when people were saying, "Oh, I want to back him. I just need assurances on this, this, and this." What the fuck does an assurance from Boris Johnson mean to exactly anyone? Exactly that. I mean, I was really again really disappointed with Caroline Flint because she said Boris Johnson has said you know he's going to save workers' rights, and I think how could the hell can you believe him? I don't know. Let's ask his tenth child, shall we? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What about Gove, though? Did you see that thing? <laughs> Even Ian Duncan Smith looks embarrassed for him. I think it was like Politics Today or something like that. He was being interviewed like, what if it doesn't pass? What if it doesn't pass? Ain't going to happen. Yeah, ain't going to happen <laughs> in this sort of like weird... Like even IDS looked like genuinely embarrassed for him. I thought that's that's a mark in the sand, isn't it? Well, what you need to do is make Michael Gove say something, then hand him a glass of water and make him applaud himself and you just see what an absolute <laughs> toss pot he is. Well, I was going to put my hand up because we have a, a little thing here where we put a hand up if one of us needs to golf or something, and that's, you know, quite common today. But I'm just going to do this instead. Uh, yeah, yeah. We'll leave it to you to decide why Hannah would do that. <laughs> Let's talk Extinction Rebellion, environmental protest group and gluer of themselves to things. I'd hope it went without saying, but just in case it doesn't, I agree with their aims. Yep. We can't continue to behave like the world has infinite resources and is incapable of being damaged. Well, we can, I suppose, but we'd be idiots. We should all be worrying about what the future holds for the planet. But the long-term future is competing with a lot of other worries at the moment, even more so in the uncertain times created by Brexit. And that is why the last week for Extinction Rebellion has been such an unmitigated disaster. Having been working class and middle class... I can tell you for a fact that you worry about very different things. Mm -hmm. When you're middle class, which I am now, you worry about whether your contract at work will be renewed, about whether your parents might need full-time care, about what your pension might look like. Yeah, that face. (laughs) (laughs) She said the word pension and it usually makes me immediately vomit. And yes, you worry about the state of the planet you are leaving for the next generation. When you're working class, you do worry about all this stuff, but a lot of your worries are a lot closer to the now. Will I have enough money to pay my rent this month? Will I get any hours at work this week? Will that cash point pay out enough money for me to get a bus home? And here's another truth for Extinction Rebellion. Working class people consume less. Ergo, they damage the environment less. They're less likely to have cars, more likely to use public transport. They fly less. 
They have smaller budgets for petrol, heating and water consumption. They're not throwing uneaten food away at the end of the week. If anything, they're struggling to feed themselves and their families. They don't upgrade their electrical appliances as much. And when they do, they're more likely to gift the old one to somebody else rather than bin it. Mm -hmm. All of which means that the decision to attempt to stop working class people getting to work on the tube last week was tragically misguided, totally unwarranted and has done immeasurable damage to Extinction Rebellion's cause as did whoever is running their Twitter account, which has all the class and race awareness of a Sex and the City film. Comparing yourselves to Rosa Parks is a big no, Mm -hmm. but it's especially crass when being white is precisely why most Extinction Rebellion protests have been met with so little resistance. Seriously, guys, try being a poor black kid disrupting traffic in central London. See how that pans out for you. Do better, Extinction Rebellion, for all our sakes. Absolutely. I don't know why they picked Canning Town because it's stupid for a number. Like, there are electric trains as well there, yeah. apparently. So, like, it just didn't make any sense at all. And also, I'd have thought if you're going to go East London, you go Stratford or somewhere where, like, you're going to, you know, it's a big, there's a lot of shit going on there. You're going to disrupt, like, a lot of people because the point is they want to disrupt things because that's how direct action works, right? Canning Town just seems like just a weird choice anyway to me. But, yeah. I agree with what you've said. Later they had a tweet which said, what would you do if your house was on fire? And it's just that sort of thing. What was the answer? Not not do anything. Well, just... the answer from quite a lot of people was, well, I don't actually have a house. Yeah. Which is, you know, if there was, if they had was any kind point? of class awareness. But well, the point the was, point? they're saying the planet's on fire. So if your okay. house was on fire, what would you do? But if you use the word home, yeah. then it includes everyone who lives in a flat, rents a house, is on a houseboat. Caravan in their back garden, whatever the fuck. It makes it belong to everyone, yeah. the word home. Whereas the word house makes it seem really, really middle class. And I just think to myself, what would Rosa Parks do? <laughs> Someone's going to ask the important questions, Mick. Right, lads, do you want some good news? Yes, and please. As listeners will know, we've been banging on about the menopause a fair bit lately. And you should listen to our Sunday Chop series on this if you've not already. But a uh, general consensus is no one really talks about it unless it's to have some lols about hot flushes and mad old biddies. In fact, menopause, peri and proper can be a bit harrowing if you don't really know what you're up against, which you may well not, because no one's fucking talking about it, let alone researching it or trying to find ways to make it more tolerable. Okay, well, surprise, right? Right. One of the big areas that a lot of people we've spoken to over the last few months have flagged is the world of work and how that can impact on women going through the ominously named change. Can I just say that because it tends to kick in just when women are really flying as well. Mm, it's when I guess you've reached so, yeah. a really like important part of your career, you've got a lot of stuff under control, you've probably got about as high up as you might, might be going to get. And then yeah. this fucker kicks in. Well, in fact, research conducted by the Chartered Institute of Personnel and Development earlier this year found that 59% of the women surveyed who were between 45 and 55 and experiencing menopause symptoms said that it had a negative impact on their work, which is not hugely surprising given the chats we've been having with people. Well, to coincide with World Menopause Day last week, Channel 4 announced it would launch its first menopause policy to support employees experiencing menopausal symptoms. According to Channel 4, it's the first known strategy among UK media companies and will offer flexible working arrangements, paid leave for staff feeling unwell and a workplace assessment to make sure their environment isn't hindering them further. 
And if you think, well, that's kind of the bare minimum any employer could offer staff who are experiencing medical issues, then yes, I have to agree with you. But Channel 4 also says it will offer a cool, quiet workspace for those who need it, as well as support and guidance. And I guess the other thing there is that the... And again, it is the bare minimum, but they're seeing it as a medical issue as opposed to just women's troubles. I have to check that word cool. Uh, Presumably it means cold. Yes. Rather than no beanbags. Uh, yeah, no, there'll, a be, there'll be a table tennis situation going Unicycle on. Unicycle and a clown Absolutely. bike. Yeah, it's a small it's hat. It's literally a cold, quiet room. That's all you need. Don't fill it with shit. Yeah, I, I assume that's what it means. Okay. Alex Mann, chief exec of Channel 4, said the intention is to normalise a taboo subject by making it more visible and hoped it would inspire more in the industry to support women in their workplaces transitioning through the menopause. Uh, so when the quotes about what they were doing and, and how great it was, they were also saying like, oh, it's just so Channel 4 because we're always at the cutting edge of things and we'd like, we just like to deal with like really taboo subjects and stuff. And I was a bit like... Ugh. Yeah, I'm not sure I like the word taboo. Cause it's, mm. not, it's like they're enforcing it being a taboo. Yeah. Is it because it reminds you of Glamour Kid? Uh, no, Is it because you think of those peach drink? It's <laughs> <laughs> horrific. Um, yeah, a mirage. No, it's because taboo feels like something that we've all already agreed that we're not going to talk about culturally. And And yet we're talking about it. Yeah, I think certain groups of people do talk about it. I mean, it's not like we're we're a fetish, is it? More news next time. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we look at how some of those naughty girls are reacting to sexism in the medical profession. Because yes, demeaning terms such as girls, silly girls, naughty girls, little ladies, lady members, madam chair and wee lassies are part and parcel of the British Medical Association's treatment of women, an independent review of the BMA has just revealed. Fuck's sake. That's not even the worst of it. Daphne Romney QC was commissioned by the BMA to carry out the investigation after female doctors spoke out against sexual harassment and sexism by senior members of the trade union. And she discovered a toxic old boys club culture in which female doctors attending the union's events have been groped, ordered to accompany male doctors back to hotel rooms and subjected to inappropriate and lewd comments. Dr Nikita Kanani, NHS England's Medical Director of Primary Care, said, The findings are appalling. This sort of behaviour is unacceptable in any walk of life and people who treat women in this way have no place in our profession and no place in our leadership. Absolutely. Clearly this is a horrible culture for the women professionals within it and hopefully the review means that change will happen. But it also feeds back into something that we are constantly wanging on about and that is that women's pain is not taken as seriously as men's. With so many dinosaurs in the profession, it's not really a stretch to reach the conclusion that these male doctors view their patients in the same demeaning, dismissive way that they clearly view their colleagues. What are you doing on November the 18th? I'm thinking of, and I want you to brace yourself for this, Hannah, but I am thinking of talking to some men. Ah. Wow. Any men in particular? Handpicked three. Craig Parkinson. That's right, he of unbuttoning and buttoning his jacket on Line of Duty and also the amazing Two Shot podcast. Nish Kumar, he of the Mash Report and General Funniness. And Mr Joe Lysett, he of hilarity on Sue's whenever he is in a room. And fantastic, what I can only describe as blouses. He does have incredible blouses. What do you think the chances of getting all those people in the same room at the same time are, Mickey? I'm glad you've asked, Joe, because I've been working very hard to make this happen alongside my <laughs> lovely colleagues, Jen and Hannah, who you may know well. And uh, it is going to happen at King's Place on November the 18th, which is International Men's Day Eve. It's going to be mint. 
Get your ticket. Yeah, if you want to get to www.standardissuepodcast.com, you will find details of that and our many other live shows. I love that you always say the WWW. I know. I, I interviewed Sam Avery, another man, once, and he said it, We're and everywhere. it just made me laugh. So I like to put it in. I am joined on the phone by Daniel Roberts from Alliance for Choice. And to be honest, I kind of thought that Danny would be pie-eyed and swinging from a chandelier because the laws have been changed in Northern Ireland. Abortion has been decriminalised and same-sex marriage is now on. Danny, how are you feeling? Yeah, yesterday was big, but the next five months were big as well. Last night, decriminalisation came in. So at midnight, decriminalisation is now the position, which means the woman who is awaiting trial for getting pilled for her teenage daughter that is dropped that woman has been waiting for years to find out what's happening with her case and the daughter was pulled out of school to be interviewed by the police there was a lot of really awful things happened in the process of that case so that's my drop so our focus now is making sure that there's access yesterday in the assembly which came back for i think it was under an hour yeah, Stormont was open but very empty for the first time in three years, yeah, right? so Sinn Féin, the Green Party and People Before Profit didn't enter the chamber oh, and Alliance, so they didn't take their seats. The SDLP did take their seats, basically just to walk out. Um, so, <laughs> yep. Yeah, they took, their, they took their seats and then said, we aren't taking part in this shan anymore. So that then left the DUP, the, some of the UUP and the TUV. So... Yeah, they weren't able to elect a speaker because that needs cross-community support. So nothing really happened. But the DUP had, with the help of the Attorney General, which is questionable because he's supposed to advise the executive, not parties, mm-hmm. had drafted a bill to try and repeal the section of the Executive Formation Act that would make abortion no longer a crime. So that didn't go anywhere. But before she left the chamber, Arlene Foster said, um, this isn't over, we'll be exploring every legal avenue. So that seems to be only in relation to abortion, not marriage equality, which is interesting because if it's wrong for Westminster to act on one, why is it not wrong for the other? If your whole argument is about devolution. So we have to now go through a consultation process and get services up and running. So it is a massive change. We've got now nobody else who takes pills from Women on Web or Women Help Women, which are safe websites to, to get pills from after a consultation with the doctor. They won't have to worry about their houses being raided. We can get people information about how to take the pills without worrying that we're going to be arrested. We can answer the phone and our Facebook messages and all the, the contacts that we do get from people who need access without being quite as cagey as we have been mm-hmm. so that is a massive relief and yesterday people were starting to tell their abortion stories for the first time publicly because that threat of criminalization had been lifted so that is huge and we've also got a change in the funding so now everybody will be funded to travel to england until services are up and running here okay, that's- whereas before it was means tested that's a big improvement as well, but it's something people have to travel. And then the interim guidelines say that doctors can use their discretion to provide abortion care where there's a serious or fatal fetal anomaly. So that's huge as well, because people like Ashley Topley and Sarah Yurt would then be able to get care here and advice here without having to travel. Again, it's at a doctor's discretion, so it's not in any way guaranteed and it's a bit of a postcode lottery, but it is a massive improvement on what we already have. So now we have to make sure that there's free, safe, legal and local accessible abortion services, rural and urban, for everyone who wants and needs it. 
So <laughs> it is a, a day for celebration, but also it's kind of right back to the rhinestone. Okay, so what comes next for you guys? Well, we have a few things planned. We have podcast recording on Saturday with the Irish Times and Amanda Palmer. So we'll be talking about what's next at that. So that's in the Mac this Saturday. And then on the 7th of November, we'll have a burlesque night, burlesque for choice. We have a few sort of fun things planned in the short term, but we'll also be working on the consultation response and trying to inform people of the key points in the consultation so they can respond as well. We're also working with Doctors for Choice Northern Ireland to try and make sure the guidelines meet everybody's needs to using their medical expertise and then what we know about situations in other jurisdictions where barriers haven't always been addressed. That's what's next. And then also keeping an eye to see, is there going to be a legal challenge that we don't know? That's, I suppose, what's keeping me grounded at the minute is we don't know what's going to happen next. Yeah, I get um, it. Yeah. yeah. And then also I'm involved in the Love Equality campaign. That was a big, big change yesterday as well. So equal marriage will be coming in. Again, there has to be a consultation period and things like paperwork and training for registrars and stuff has to be done. But we're hopeful that there will be equal marriage provision in February so people will be able to give notice in January that they intend to marry so where it's not going to be just marriages but also civil partnerships for opposite sex couples so which is already in England and Wales and hopefully religious marriages as well for churches that choose to opt in nobody's going to be forced to perform marriages but uh, for churches that decide to like for example All Souls in Belfast is a a sort of non-denominational church and that they've said that they would be interested in performing marriages for religious same-sex couples. So we've still got a few issues to iron out there and how the people are going to be able to convert from a civil partnership to a marriage. That came out yesterday. Conor McGinn asked a question in Westminster and yeah, so it's clear that all the sort of paperwork and bureaucracy isn't quite sorted out but the law changes there. So now that bit's been won and now it's sort of working out the details so get a load of confetti for february then and what is quite fitting because we're sort of hopeful that valentine's day could be the Uh, yeah yeah the first sort of uh, yeah or roundabout and then we're also working on on how people the process for people to convert from um a civil partnership to a marriage it's not all done but getting past midnight last night was was great i think everybody even though it was a monday and yesterday also felt like it was a week long um, <laughs> yeah. We had, yeah we had an all answer choice press conference followed by going up to Stormont because all of a sudden there was all these shenanigans afoot um, which it turns out they've been planning since July so yeah they've been planning this for months to bring this last minute bill that didn't go anywhere but we were there to, to let MLAs know that we were not going to stop without having access to free safe legal local abortion services and then we had a love equality event straight after that, which was which was really lovely. There was a load of couples who are engaged or who are already civilly partnered and wanting to convert. And the room was all done up like a like a wedding reception oh. with candelabras and balloons and flowers and a wedding cake. So that was really nice. It was a completely different sort of vibe. Yeah, so I'd gone from shouting outside Stormont to like a sort of daytime wedding celebration <laughs> standard day standard yeah. day yeah, yeah. <laughs> have you got any message for Arlene I think just accept that this is what the public wants 
This is evidenced in the Northern Ireland Life and Times survey, which is carried out by ARC, a joint project between Queen's University of Belfast and the Ulster University. It's similar to the British Public Attitudes Survey. It's not an opinion poll, it's, a, it's an academic study. And consistently it has shown that the majority of people support equal marriage and support abortion law reform. This is across demographics, it's across genders, it's across community background, it's across voting intentions. So I think it's time for the DUP to to change. You know, if, they, if they are wanting to be pragmatic as a political party, never mind a human rights complaint, they need to just stop fighting this. Both issues. Yeah, her saying yesterday as she was leaving Stormont that they'll explore every legal avenue. Well, just don't. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I totally agree. Totally agree. Please tell me you're going to do a little bit of celebrating. We were too superstitious to do anything yesterday. Yeah, Alan Strauss Derry and Foy Pride had a whole party planned. They had a banner drop and a gig with um, Folk was DJing and uh, they had a, a brilliant time. But we were too superstitious to organise anything for last night. We were all anxiously waiting for, for midnight. So maybe not quite as optimistic, unwarranted, which is good. Yeah, so tonight we are some of the stall activists. So we have about 40 people who um, do a rota with our information stall on Saturday afternoons. So hopefully in six months' time they'll get their Saturday afternoons back. Yep. But um, yeah, so some of the stall activists, some of the ones who were canvassing with us for repeal people who have you know been on buses down to the march for choice in dublin or being involved in rally for choice and in alliance for choice um and project choice and trust us which is all the different student campaigns as well um are getting together for some some times this evening we are going to celebrate but also conscious that we've still a lot of work to do to make sure that we have accessible abortion Well, thank you so, so much for all of your campaigning, Alliance for Choice. And I know there's a load of other groups that are out there doing stuff with you. Thank you. It's been incredible. And while I know that you still got to cross those T's and dot the I's and fingers crossed, (laughs) and obviously, like, we're all on board for this to happen, do do have a pint or six tonight. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, on a Tuesday. Yeah. Please do remember to give Alliance for Choice a follow on Twitter where you'll find them at all four, the number four, choice. And that'll keep you up to date with what they're doing to make sure this all goes through. Their work has been incredible. Their merch is incredible too. So have a look at that and treat yourself to a t-shirt. And it's that lovely time where hopefully it goes from being campaign gear to just a really cool t-shirt. Hi, I am joined on the phone by... MP for South Cambridgeshire, a former uh, Conservative MP, now Liberal Democrat, Heidi Allen. Thank you so much for joining me, Heidi. No problem at all. What a busy day you've got ahead of you. It's currently Monday. I'm not going to ask you for a prediction of what might happen this week because... um, (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) But what I thought I might ask you is what you would like to see happen this week, Uh, maybe an idea of how likely that is. Oh, gosh, that's a $64,000 question. Um, (laughs) I presume we're talking, um, not me winning the lottery, but Brexit-related. So I think the best we can hope for this week, I would like, of course, the the Prime Minister to fall into the arms of those people's voters and uh, say, you know what, you're absolutely right. The way to solve all of this is to put my proposed deal, such as it is, back to the British people, um, because allegedly everything he says, it's people versus Parliament, so what's the problem? 
and uh, and let them vote on it. Um, I think, unfortunately, that's unlikely. I think we may well get there, but it won't be this week. Um, so I think the best we can hope for this week is that we get the government just to slow the clock down a little bit and give us enough time to scrutinise this new deal that Boris Johnson's got with Europe. Well, that does seem very sensible in as much as I wouldn't eat something until it was cooked properly. It it does seem we are ploughing through, I say we, the government is attempting to plough through with this, and time is what would be really valuable. Yeah, because Boris Johnson has set himself this do-or-die date of the 31st of October, which is um, completely bonkers. Why would you do that, surely? Um, you know, if he believes this is such a great deal, um, then surely he wants the full backing of the House and Commons and the House of Lords for it, because there will be a lot of legislation. It's not just us voting on the deal. It's all the legislation um, that then enacts it and puts it into statute. And, you know, you need time to do that. It's utterly foolhardy from our point of view to, to rush what will be the biggest decision and change in our country for generations to come. To try and rush that is just bonkers and it shows that he basically doesn't want us to look at the detail. Yeah, I mean, that does seem like the the obvious thing. If somebody just waved something in front of you and said, sign it, you certainly wouldn't do that. Um, Absolutely. Let's put it this way, the DUP have already seen so it's fair to say some of the ERG MPs in the the Tory party are going to see the flaws in it too. Uh, Okay, now let's get on to the ERG. Amber Rudd uh, was one of many women last week who was saying there was something about the fact that the ERG were accepting a deal from Boris Johnson or some members of the ERG were accepting a deal from Boris Johnson that they wouldn't have accepted from Theresa May, that it, that, that kind of reeked of sexism. And it's not often I agree with Amber Rudd, but I can see her point there. Did, as, a, as a former Conservative member, um, can you see sexism still operating in the Tory party that way? Totally. But, I mean, to be fair, it operates right across the House of Commons. It's a very um, male-dominated environment, full stop. Um, but I think she's right. There is something about the little boys club with the likes of Mark Francoise and Steve Baker, who, you know, frankly, appear to worship the ground Boris Johnson walks on. Um, But I'm sorry, I don't want a little boys club running the country. I want pragmatic politicians who put the country first. You know, in fairness to Theresa May, although I think she came out with a poor deal because she was sitting on the fence for too long and trying to please everybody. But at least I am confident um, that she was most definitely doing what she thought was in the national interest. Um, and, and that's the kind of prime minister you want. As I say, you might disagree on the conclusions she reached, but you, you could tell none of it was about her or her ego or power, whereas it's quite clearly very, very different with Boris Johnson. Um, and yes, it's all the little boys running after him. Yeah, it's it's quite depressing, particularly when, if you look elsewhere within the, well, certainly if you look over to the Remainer movement, it's absolutely chock-a-block full of prominent women available to for you to admire, um, be that Joanna Cherry or Gina Miller, Anna Subri, yourself. Yeah. It, do you see a divide at all between Remain and um, the Brexit gang, that, 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 that women are perhaps more welcome, more welcome in the Remain camp? Um, I don't know whether it's welcome so much. It's just it's, it's a more... I suppose that the whole point of Remain is it's a more collegiate team type approach in life where you're saying, you know what, you know, Little Britain, yes, we were majestic once in the empire, but get over it. Those days have gone. We need each other. And, you know, the best things and the most effective things happen in life when people work together. And that's the EU. And I think women are naturally 
perhaps more team players. It's not all about them winning, winning, winning. It's about yeah. what can we compromise? How can we accommodate? You know, how can we get the family or my bunch of friends all to to agree on something that's tricky? Whereas men can, I think, be more dogmatic and there's more testosterone and more ego there. So I think it's more just a symptom of the sort of people you are if you're a remainer, um, as opposed to wanting to stand on your own two feet and be on your own in the world, which is, um, of course, um, how leave would be if we leave the European Union. How on earth are we going to fix climate change on our own when we're just not? Oh, well, absolutely. And I see that's quite interesting because I'm one of those people that gets categorised as a, a floating voter um, in that I generally vote differently in the... Um, general election, the European elections and the local election. And I would always vote Green in the European election because I think that's a, an international issue, uh, the environment, and therefore it should be dealt with by people uh, on an international level. Uh, but my defence has always been it's not so much me that's a floating voter, it's the parties that have moved around around me. I've stayed in the same place and they're all moving around. That feels quite... Uh, common at the moment that people are stepping away from a traditional say for example left or right background and 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 judging everything on a remain and a brexit footing do you think that's leading to a change in the way we look at politics it is most definitely you know and that that concept of you feeling the party's moving around you or welcome to my world that's exactly (laughs) why i left the tories back in february you know the normal rules of engagement have completely broken down and yes, it is hell at the moment. The country and our economy are paying the price for this seismic change in our politics. But the, the positive thing I take out of all of this, you know, you can't make an omelette without breaking some eggs. I do think there is a potential for things to change and be better in the future because we've broken the model. We've proven that when something massive hits the country by way of challenge, that the old big two-party system just lumbers on and can't cope with it because they're too busy trying to protect themselves and hold themselves together and work out what the country needs. So I think, um, you know, I hope, um, and certainly the Unite Remain initiative that I've been leading on, getting the Remain parties to work together to form a uh, Remain alliance when that general election comes, one of the other things that's important to everybody who participates in that is proportional representation because we have got to change the way that A, voters feel represented and B, that decisions are made in the House of Commons because when you have really big problems, you reach stalemate. And, you know, out of this broken system, I do think it's possible that we will create something better, but it's just, it feels agonisingly slow at the moment because people are desperate for something, you know, professional and and efficient and is going to lead us out of this with a positive vision for the future. And unfortunately, it's just very, very messy going through that change. It is. And, and when I see that, you know, people will argue, certain people will argue they've, they voted to leave in order to shake things up. I think, well, well, actually, you've done that. We wouldn't actually even need to leave for that for that aim to have been achieved. I live in Cambridge. Um, your seat is the seat right next to mine. Lots of my friends, uh, you are their MP. And we are a very, uh, we, we voted yes to the uh, alternative vote. We were one of the few places in the country that did. Um, so has it been easier for you in that um, y- you've made, you made your decision? Has it been easier for you knowing that you have the support of your constituents behind you? I know some MPs are, are really out on a limb because they're in leave seats, but they are arguing remain. Yeah, it has been. I mean, it's, it's, still tough because of course not every single one of my constituents agrees with me but broadly you're absolutely right I'm 
extremely lucky. Um, not not just that they predominantly voted Leave, because um, I actually have a chunk of Cambridge City in my constituency as well. I've got the Queen Edith Ward, which has the biomedical campus. Yeah. Um, and I don't have all of South Cambridge's local authority wards. So some of the more Leavey parts of South Cambridge I don't have, which means on aggregate my remain vote was probably in the high 60s. Um, that makes a massive difference. But also the fact that, you know, you know Cambridge, you'll know South Cam's very well. Yeah. It's, you know, it's the tech bubble around Cambridge. So I've got the Genome Campus, I've got AstraZeneca, um, I've got, you know, people with 25 PhDs each. The, the place is full of thinking academic people working in education and research. And they're thinking people who make decisions based on evidence and facts. They're not, um, you know, you know. They always say you can put a blue rose out on a on a donkey, and people would vote for it. They're, they're just, I don't <laughs> yeah. want to find out in the general election. But they're not, by and large, those sorts of people. So the fact that they have supported me as I, you know, came out as an independent, tried to form something for the European elections, reverted to being an independent, and now I've gone Lib Dem, because I've tried very hard to explain why at every stage of the way I've held, I think six or seven big public meetings now for people to talk to me and a whole pop of surgeries nearly every week in pubs so people can come and say hi um i i've really really lucky to have the support of them um and that's made it a very very difficult job considerably easier i can't imagine um being in as you say in a leave seat and, and going out in a limb that must be really hard yeah Let's get back to Unite to Remain because that's really interesting because I think that, that periodically, and I say this as a, a Remainer, I get, I get a, like a, a, a sort of a, a wash of, of hopelessness where I think, oh, what can I do? But actually, Unite to Remain is something useful that people can get involved in that actually hopefully will make a difference. So this is how, ca- how can our listeners um, who want to learn more, um, learn more and how can they get involved? So basically, Unite to Remain, um, I set up um, not long after the European elections in May, when it was clear that people were really worried about the Remain vote being split, and they wanted Remain parties to work more closely together, and there just wasn't time in the European elections because they were sprung on us so quickly. So since then and through the summer, I've been working with Clyde Cymru, the Green Party, Lib Dems, and the Independents to try and pull together a pact so that only one Remain candidate will stand and it won't be every seat because there are some seats that are very heavily leave and there's just no point. Um, Scotland and Northern Ireland are very different for obvious reasons. Yeah. But across England and Wales, as many seats as possible where it can make a difference but and return a Remain MP if there is only one Remain candidate standing. So your um, listeners will know, I'm sure, about the Brecon by-election yeah. a couple of months ago in Wales. That was our test case. They applied Cymru and the Greens stood down and the Lib Dem candidate won. And that was in a seat that had very marginally been leave. So it just shows that it is possible. And the idea being that if Brexit isn't resolved by the time we find ourselves in general election territory, then we could return a big block of Remain MPs, you know, a multicolored batch of Greens, Plaid Cymru, Independents, Lib Dems, that could really shift the weather. Um, and the big thing for um, people to get involved, um, you know, sign up on our website, and that means you'll be kept up to date with where we're up to, what the plan for seats is. But it's going to mean, you know, getting out on the streets when that general election comes and potentially canvassing for somebody if you want to get involved or delivering leaflets for somebody that isn't in a party that you might normally back, which is, um, you know, my friend Harriet calls it political muscle memory. People need to learn to um, relax their political muscle memory and be prepared to 
support somebody else. So in you know Brecon and Radnorshire, which is way before I joined the Lib Dems, I went out there and I helped canvassing. I've never canvassed for the Lib Dems in my life. And there were green people there helping. helping. And that's what we need to do. We need to put our own party allegiances aside um, and work for the greater good. Um, and, you know, and hats off to the candidates up and down the country because there are going to be some disappointed candidates that thought they were going to stand and will be asked to stand down for a party that is perhaps more likely to win in that seat than they are. Um, and it's just supporting, if you're in those parties, being supportive to that candidate um, and helping rally the troops um, to support whoever the lead Unite to Remain candidate will be there um, to make sure that they win. Can I ask, you didn't mention Labour in that list. Uh, is is that a hope that they will throw their um, their support behind it? Yeah, I mean, it, it's not possible um, for a couple of reasons. Um, one, Labour, um, as we know, have really struggled to find a clear voice on their policy, remain or leave. Um, and this needs to be unequivocal, 100%, with bells on, um, remain, people's vote and canvas, to, or, or rather campaign to remain. But the other um, big reason is the whole point of Unite to Remain is that, well, if I'm going to stand down for you in ABC seats, you have to stand down for me in XYZ. And Labour being a national party, they're just never going to stand down because they, they will want to put a candidate everywhere. So it isn't, unfortunately, possible for them to be a formal partner in this. But the way we're dealing with that is um, there are a lot of tactical voting websites out there. So Best for Britain have one, Compass... Um, remain united and the people's vote will have a people's vote 100 campaign list what we're hoping to do we're talking to all of them is to make sure that their recommendations for tactical voting in seats where we can't make a difference where we're not able to strip out candidates and that the tactical voting piece will work alongside ours Um, so in those seats where for example it's a labor lib dem marginal the tactical voting will tell people how to vote. So even though Labour can't be a formal partner, the tactical voting piece will, will help with that. Um, but yes, it, it would be even more powerful if Labour were prepared to stand formally down in some seats, but they're just not going to do that. So, so just, to, uh, just to clarify, if we took Cambridge as an example, um, Daniel yeah. Zeichner very ardently remain. Does that mean you wouldn't put anyone up against him? So first thing to say is it's not me making the decision. OK, yes, yeah, sorry. It's, it's <laughs> the parties. So Unite to Remain is purely a facilitator. If we, you know, we bang heads together, if we need some more polling to prove who's stronger in one seat, we're connecting donors with parties when those seats have been decided. But it's not for us to say to the parties how they should do this. Right. Um, but that will be, um, in that seat, it would be um, a Lib Dem Labour marginal. And there will be a question for the Lib Dems there as to whether they want to put all their efforts into defeating, as you say, Remain, MP yeah. in Daniel Zeitner or whether their resources are better shifted elsewhere. Um, but yeah, that's, I've no doubt that's one of the seats they're looking at at the moment. Okay, great. I've just got one, one more question for you, Heidi. Um, you came into the Commons in 2015. And so your entire sort of political career has taken place alongside this, this extreme issue. Has it been helpful to you that you were new blood that you didn't know how, how things had worked before or is it, it has it been very difficult to sort of learn on the job in such a a crazy environment I mean I've certainly I think matured in my <laughs> knowledge beyond my years that's <laughs> for sure um, I've learned so much more about parliamentary procedure and oh me too in fact 
Yeah, I mean, it's a back, lowly back bench. You don't normally to get get to know these shenanigans so <laughs> early on. Um, I would say, so in some ways, I suppose that's a positive. I would say, on the other hand, um, I am absolutely knackered. <laughs> this hasn't been four and a half years worth of being an MP. This is nine years worth of being an MP yeah. in terms of the hours. And it is absolutely relentless. You know, I had three days off. Or I've had three days off all year. My word. Um, yeah, so it, I mean, it's partly my own fault because I've chosen to pick up this Unite to Remain, which took away any chance of a break over summer. Um, but it, it is a pressure that people, if we want to get more people into politics from the outside, like I was, you know, I wasn't involved in politics at all. I was busy running a business with my husband. I knew nothing about politics. Um, if we want to get more people in from the outside, living like this is not sustainable. You know, we don't have children, so we can just about cope. But you you cannot work at this pace and um, for this long if you have children and a family. So yes, it's been exceptional um, in terms of learning and being, you know, helping or trying to do your bit through a very intense period. Um, <laughs> this can't be how it always is because we're going to kill MPs at this rate. <laughs> so, so that that part isn't so great. I saw Stella Creasy the other day and how she does what she does and you know, be pregnant on top. I know being pregnant is not an illness, but it is exhausting. I've been led to believe. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm quite amazed that she finds the time to even go to sleep. But I, I, I do have to add that I think that um, for young women sitting watching this now, like I say, there is hope in a way that there wasn't when I was a young woman watching Parliament, as in you can see women, you know, Jess Phillips, Stella Creasy, yourself, Kirsty Blackwood, but you can see them doing a great job and it's it's really impressive to watch. We need we need more coming in and I promise it won't always be like this. Yeah. <laughs> it will be normal again sometimes. <laughs> uh, thank you. Normal and better. Yeah. I mean, if this was the new normal, I don't think any of us could cope. Um, I, it's exhausting to watch and it's exhausting to try and cover from a news point of view because so much changes and yet nothing changes, which is a really sort of odd, odd situation. Thank you so much for your time, Heidi. No problem at all, Hannah. Hello. You may or may not, and if you're not, you certainly should be, a regular attendee at our live events where we chat to brilliant women about all sorts of everything. And there's a lot to be said for having that kind of general chat, but there's also a lot to be said for some focus. And we have got an event that is going to be a TV special because 2019 has been a pretty cracking year for TV in general. But there's been a bumper amount of great stuff created by women in particular. And we want to celebrate this by talking to some very exciting and hardworking women in the TV industry. When are we going to be doing this? We're going to be doing this on November the 10th, which is a Sunday. And where are we going to be doing this? Well, thanks very much for asking. We're going to be doing this at a brand new, exciting theatre in Soho called The Boulevard, which is beautiful. And we would, of course, love you to be there. So, yeah, check our website, www.standardissuepodcast.com, for more details about this event and all of our forthcoming live events. I'm joined on the phone by Kieran Millwood-Hargrave, author of the new book, The Deathless Girls, which I have to say, Kieran, is fantastic. So thank you very much for joining me. Oh, I'm really pleased to hear that. Thank you for having me. A few weeks ago, I spoke to Kit Duvall, who has also written a book in this series, the Bellatrix series, which is a 
new series of sort of reimagined classics for young adult feminist readers. You've written quite a lot of poetry, haven't you? How did you come to get involved in this? Yes, so I've written several books of poetry and also three books for younger readers, readers. And Helen Thomas, the editor of the series, she approached me in March last year and asked if I'd like to write my first ever young adult book for the Bellatrix series. And she described it as taking male-authored classics and telling a marginalised person's point of view. So essentially, like Wide Sargasso Sea does for Jane Eyre, is what the concept behind the Bellatrix project is. And so I decided to choose Dracula, and so The Deathless Girls was born. Tell us about The Deathless Girls, because it's not the story of of Dracula per se, is it? Not at all. It's sort of been billed as the untold story of the Brides of Dracula, but I prefer to think of it as the origin story, because you really do only get a sort of a very small insight into the, the man himself. And I very much wanted to refocus this story on the people who are known as the Brides of Dracula. And that's not actually in Bram Stoker's original novel. They're actually known as the Dark Sisters. And when I read this description of them in the original novel, of there being two dark, one fair, I immediately imagined the two dark as women of colour, as twins. And from there, I started to build my story. And the Brides of Dracula are always kind of presented as these sort of blood, lusty, sex lusty sexy lady things basically and that's just you know that that's their mo and that's all they're about so obviously yeah we don't know much about if anything about them but the way you've sort of reimagined this this origin story as you say but you've sort of taken aspects of your own family and, and brought that into it my two main characters, Kizzy and Lil. So they're they're twins and they're travellers. So they're what we would known in a derogatory way as gypsies. And what really drew me to this particular angle was that gypsies, the Romani travellers, they originate in an area of India where my own family originate. And I also have a very strange link on my mother's side with the the culture because my family came over from Romania when they were escaping the Nazis. So that from both sides, from both my Indian heritage and from my Eastern European heritage, I had this strange link to this place, to this culture. And I wanted to present it in a way that we wouldn't necessarily have seen it before. I know my earliest encounter with a traveller character was probably Esmeralda in The Hunchback of Notre Dame in the film. Who's also kind of like shown as this kind of sexy lady thing. Yeah. And I'm very interested in the fetishization of the other. Mm. And and I work very hard in all my books to centre the experience of the other. So try and actually show how strange cultures all cultures are so in the book the deathless girls they call people who aren't travelers the settled so instantly you're labeling them as other and they you sort of see it through lil who's one of the twins eyes and you see how strange our culture is how much we eat meat how strange that is and and how we stay in one place and we leave our houses to sort of fall into disrepair And we don't live in sort of big groups of family. And so I was really interested in showing a culture that we might think of as strange and other and actually making our own that in this case. So with the travellers 
they were actually have an inherent link with Dracula anyway, because Vlad the Impaler, mm. who's famous for impaling, um, <laughs> in the 1400s in Romania, he actually had thousands and thousands of Romani slaves. So he did enslave the traveller people and Kizzy and Lil originally come to the house of a lord as slaves. There's a line in it that I found very interesting because obviously the sisters are regarded differently because they're travellers. So as you say, they've been enslaved basically because they have no protection effectively against yeah. this and they are the lowest of the low in society and, and very much treated that way and there's a line in it where Lil says it will never not feel like violence when they are regarded in a certain way by the yeah. settlers or the or the settled. Quite a lot of anger went into mm-hmm. this book <laughs> maybe you can tell and and I think sometimes that's not a helpful emotion when you're writing because you aren't able to make your point. But it came at a point when I, as a woman, at my experience as a woman in the world, I was angry. And I wanted to find a way to express the everyday microaggression that you just that just builds and builds and builds and it never stops hurting and and, you know when someone looks at you a certain way or feels that they can talk to you a certain way or they touch you a certain way and obviously this goes from the less extreme to the true sort of traumatic events and and in the book they did live in a society that was very brutal and that those microaggressions were more overt and they nearly always ended in violence you know that's the case even now that women of color are more at risk of sexual violence of assault and less likely to be able to speak up about it and feel like they're not empowered by the process so i suppose what i wanted lil to be saying to the reader is that words hurt and the way that you're seen even if action isn't taken or inflicted upon you it's still a sort of violence and it's still a sort of wound that you have to carry in yourself and as you say there's a lot going on and I sort of throw them into all these adversities but that's how the world was and how in some ways it continues to be I didn't want it to be a kind of misery (laughs) misery memoir and I've tried to inject it with hope and love and I want to give my characters fight and power within the world but ultimately they exist in a world that that's there to persecute them and so it's about how they overcome that and how specifically vampirism becomes a way for them to gain power in this world. Hannah says she sees Brexit analogies in in basically everything now and and I couldn't help but see a Brexit analogy in this I don't know if if that's but I think well I think it's hard I guess if you're if you're writing something creatively you know if you're doing anything creatively it's hard not to be influenced by the world around you and the world around us at the moment is let's say quite specific so the ending of the book sorry spoiler alert the sort but of, not really <laughs> the, well no yeah fair enough but the point of where they've sort of gotten to where they've gotten to is that they want power or, or kizzy wants power because she's bored of being disempowered she's had enough of being treated like shit she wants to be in control of her own destiny and yeah. arguably you could say well she's not but is there a message there about you know sort of violence begets violence absolutely and i think it's very hard when you've been impacted by violence to not let it turn into anger and and especially if you don't have support in working through them and something that I'm sort of looking aghast at at the moment is the the impacts on our NHS and therefore on mental health services which I 
could not have survived without and just the the sort of the privilege now that you seem to have to have to get that support and so if you you know I'm talking about a book that's set you know hundreds and hundreds of years ago but in many ways many of the the issues facing them are that they don't have the support they don't have the breath they don't have the network to work through what they what the traumas that that are inflicted on them and so they turn to the language they've been taught by their abusers which is violence which is anger which is fear and wanting you know kizzy at one point said you know i used to think to make people afraid was a terrible thing and now i want them to look at me and weep you know she really sees this fear as the only way to get power and that was a really sad thing to watch my characters go through you know Um, (laughs) there comes a point in a novel where you're not really in control of them anymore and they're making their own decisions and you know I had this end point obviously because Stoker I'm responding to Stoker and so my two dark sisters were going to end up as vampires and that's no spoiler but it's sad to see Kizzy turn from this person who's full of passion and light into this kind of, you know, this this dead, <laughs> literally this undead dead thing who has yeah. forced herself to become steel and can't stand the pain of being flesh and blood anymore. And that was a really horrible, that scene where her and Lil face each other, that was a really sad scene to write. And it was sort of, I was being Lil, looking at Kizzy saying, what have you done? <laughs> also, I mean, there there is obviously also actual violence in the book basically the threat of of rape is just constant for these two girls and 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 the other girls around them in the book it's young adult fiction do you think with that younger audience that sort of threat of physical violence but it certainly wouldn't have been something that i would have thought about much do you think that's something young women are more aware of now i think they're more aware of their rights i don't know if that's the same is being more aware that this thing exists. So I'm a survivor of sexual violence, which happened in my teens. And I think in this book, I wanted to show that you can be a survivor and not a victim. And again, I don't think it's a spoiler to say that a rape doesn't happen. Mm. And that was a kind of victory. (laughs) It would have been very easy to go there. And I was so glad that, that that didn't happen. And a lot of books do. But the thing is that some even even the trauma of the attempted rape then colours the rest of the book. And I think it would be have to be an entirely different book if I was going to to take it to that place, because unfortunately, it does colour a life. You know, Mm. there are aspects of it that that you deal with always and you carry with you always. And that doesn't mean that you're not going to have a very happy, fulfilled life. But I didn't want this book to be about sexual violence. What I wanted it to be about specifically was the power that men have in this particular world and what women can do to try and wield it themselves. And and obviously it's quite a bleak <laughs> quite a bleak outlook, but I do hope that there's some redemption in it through characters like Fen, who is one of the traveller boys, you know. I love men, I'm married to one, and I wanted to sort of show the complexity of all these different people and how we're all forced into these roles. You know, Malovsky is the housekeeper and she sort of keeps the girls in line and she's acting the way she does because she herself has been subject to this awful system. And so she, as you say, violence begets violence for her. 
and Vereski is made to feel powerless by Kizzy, which he then sort of tries to take his revenge the only way he knows how, which is using his strength over uh, Kizzy and then Lil. So I suppose I feel sorry for everyone in this book, apart from maybe Dracula, (laughs) (laughs) because they're all so mired in this world where the other was to be feared and there was no way of communicating across those lines of power. Dracula's just a prick. Dracula's just, I don't know. (laughs) We're coming up to Halloween. Why do you think the myth or the story of Dracula, what do you think its enduring appeal is? I think so much of it is sexual. (laughs) I think the idea of this appetite for bodies and eternal desire, eternal love that is ultimately unfulfilled. I think that there's something um, very sensual about it. And and also I think it allows in particular women to enact the desires that as a good feminist you shouldn't have of being dominated and helpless and at the mercy of some impossibly good-looking, impossibly evil... <laughs> Um, you know, being who's stronger than you. And, and I think that, that that desire to be dominated as long as it exists in sort of these safe spaces, like I think a book is a very good way to explore those kind of more more deviant sexual desires is like a very nice way to find your boundaries. And, you know, you only have to look at Twilight and how much it excited a whole generation of teenagers to, to know, you know, we're, we're all really just horny and <laughs> looking for a way to explore that in a safe way. And I think that's what vampires gave the Victorians too. Um, you know, you look at Le Fanu's Carmilla, which was the first sort of sapphic vampire crossover that very much influenced my book. And obviously Dracula, you look at how Mina is sort of played off against characters like the Dark Sisters. And I just find it so interesting how the idea of a woman having sexual urges is so scary Mm. still Mm. and you know ultimately that's why they're damned is because they use their sexuality to sort of tempt people into becoming sinners and ultimately kill them and drink their blood so it's like they're living off those carnal urges so basically i think it's sex isn't it always it's always just sex isn't it but yeah. also i was going to say not just teenagers yeah. i can't remember her name is it el james because that's twilight <gasps> oh fan God. fiction it is i always forget that and then it comes back to me and i'm shocked and amazed in you i know <laughs> it's it's for listeners who don't know what i'm talking about el james wrote the uh, 50 shades of gray trilogy series can't remember how many there were there were a lot and they were quite similar, much like Twilight, actually. But anyway, um, I read them. I had tonsillitis. Uh, I was bored. I didn't buy them. My flatmate bought no, them home. Just no shame. No shame. Thank you. Kieran, I absolutely loved it. It's so beautifully written. It's so interesting. And it's also just a beautiful object. The The cover is just gorgeous. And I have to give a shout out to Olga Beaumart, who did the cover art. Where can we find you if we want to sort of follow what you're up to on on social media and whatnot? So I am always on Twitter. I'm always on Instagram, posting pictures of my cat and talking about injustice. And what's your handle for cats Uh, and injustice? Kieran, which is K-I-R-A-N underscore M-H. Kieran, thank you so much. Thank you. 
Hannah here just to ask whether or not you already subscribe to us. Yes. Yeah, well done, Mickey. Do you know what the benefit is? I don't know why I said it like tubs. (laughs) Yes. One of the best reasons to subscribe is that you don't miss out on anything. And we have got some great things coming up soon. I'm going to be talking to comedian Sophie Duca about being one of the first women of colour to be nominated for the Edinburgh Comedy Awards. And I have also been on the phone with Green and Women Everywhere, which is a project to gather first-hand accounts from women who were at Green and Common. All of which are very interesting. So if you want to make sure you don't miss out on any of those interviews, plus the many, many that both Mick and Jen have planned, press subscribe on that place that you listen to your podcasts. I thank you. Access to the precious things. (laughs) (laughs) You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks. That time of the week where we race past the checkered flag to collect our magnum of champagne as we discuss all things women's sport. Okay, I'm going to get this shit bit over with. Not strictly speaking about women's sport, but nonetheless, the world is on fire, and I am so bored of talking about racism in football. But we must because the world is, as I say, very much on fire. Last week, the England men's team played a Euro 2020 qualifier against Bulgaria. And you might have heard about the hoo-ha in the run-up to that, about the racist abuse directed at the England team in the previous match between the two. The Bulgarian FA got all shirty about it, said the English FA were making a thing out of it. Fair enough. Only for their fans to do the exact same thing again and have a lovely time subjecting England's black players to more racist abuse during this match. Despite speculation beforehand that the England team might walk off the pitch should the same thing happen again and possibly be penalised by UEFA, they continue playing and won 6-0. Good. Or is it? You might have also seen that Haringey Borough FC, slightly less glamorous, walked off the pitch in their FA Cup tie against Yeovil Town last Saturday because of the same thing, because fans were racially abusing their players. Fortunately, they've not been penalised for that. The FA has said the match will be replayed. Personally, I don't think it should be. I think we're at a point where teams need to pay for the sins of their fans because that is the only way we're going to stop this nonsense. I think the Oval Town's fans' bad behaviour should have seen them penalised rather than imply that the FA is somehow doing Haringey a favour by not, you know, chucking them out of the tournament. And by the way, if you are paying money to go watch a football match so you can racially abuse the people on the pitch entertaining you. You're not only a cunt, you're fucking stupid too. Football has a terrible record, certainly in in recent years, in terms of protecting human rights. We should have, in my opinion, boycotted the Russian World Cup. We should definitely be boycotting the Qatar World Cup. And regardless of how unlikely it is that they'll even qualify, Bulgaria should be kicked out of the competition Sort your limes out, UEFA. It's just... And FIFA. It's just not good enough. Right, let's move on before I have some sort of embolism. Better news in football on the women's side because that's where all the good news comes from. England women have sold out their international friendly against Germany at Wembley on November the 9th. Guys, that is 80,000 people. Let's hope we see some of those people at a WSL match the following week. And I'm going to be one of those 80,000 people, just FYI. 15 quid to see England play. Finally, some great news in motor racing, which is that the W Series, you might remember I spoke to CEO of the series, Catherine Bondmuir, earlier this year, 
It's going to be back again next year and it has announced its 18 drivers, including Brit's Jamie Chadwick, who you might remember won last season's contest. Chadwick, who has been pretty vocal about her ambition to one day race in Formula One, said that she had been influenced by the fact that FIA super license points, of which you're going to need 40 if you want to race in Formula One, are going to be granted to W Series winners in next year's competition, which is fantastic. The six new entrants this year, in addition to the 12 who automatically qualify from last year, are Isla Agron, Abby Eaton, Belen Garcia, Nerea Marti, Irina Sidorkova and Bruna Tomaselli. And there's going to be another two announced at a later date. I'm aware that there's also some cricket. The 100 draft took place last weekend and, and there are some women involved in that. And I'm going to get to that at a later date. So the keynotes amongst you who'd like to hear about that, hold your horses. We're coming to it. In the meantime, I'm always interested in hearing your thoughts, as long as they're not mean. Over on the Twitter, I am at InspiroGen. More sportsy news for you next time. Welcome to Dunleavy Does Disaster. Dunleavy. What tense situation have we been in this week? Well, this week, you chose it, you should know. Uh, I know, but it's just I always ask that question. (laughs) It's for effect, darling. (laughs) We watched Airport, which is a 1970 film, largely credited with kicking off the 70s disaster film genre. The first Mm -hmm. of four airport movies. If you haven't seen this, but you have seen Airplane, you have seen this, essentially, I think. (laughs) Uh, That was so much fun, just trying to work out exactly which bits uh, Airplane had ripped off. And it was indeed most of it. Yeah, the face slapping in particular. So much face slapping in this. Based on the 1968 Arthur Haley novel, uh, Arthur Haley was very big in the 70s and 80s, so you might not remember. There was lots of things adapted from his work, probably most famously Hotel do you remember that? Is that a scary film? No. No, that's Hostel. Yeah. No, a hotel. <laughs> it's all very, like, like dynasty-type stuff. Mm. So it's a soap so, opera? Yeah. No. Well, it's a soap opera as a book, I suppose, essentially. Okay, sorry. We're talking books. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, but I think, I think Hotel was made into a film as well. Anyway, it stars every single cast member listed in alphabetical order, which t- takes fucking ages. Um, Burt Lancaster, Dean Martin... Jean Seberg um, and J- Jacqueline Bisse mm. and um, Helen Hayes who pff, let's just really you, you you haven't seen this Jen and I, so I don't think it's going to strike you quite as much as it did me and Mick but she won a fucking Oscar the fact that anyone won an Oscar for anything to do with this film it got nominated madness. for best film yeah now I think it's staggering. I should probably just uh, say to the to the listener at this point. Unfortunately, I was unable to watch this. I did watch the opening sequence about four times, so I'm quite familiar with the cast list and the. Uh, so Jen knows snow it's pusher snowing. Thing. Yeah, so you had some technical <laughs> what's a, issues. What's a snow pusher? A plow. A plow. Yeah. Oh, Mr. Plow. That's my name. That name again. Do you not know that? No. It's like the greatest episode of The Simpsons. Okay. When, when Homer buys a snow plow. 
That name again is Mr. Plough. Um, this is Maybe? lovely. Uh, that's the first six minutes of airport, though. It's just like, it's snowing, it's snowing. Everyone know it's snowing. Ooh, everywhere's icy because it is snowing. With, uh, with, with, but without the song. Without the song, but with the credits and everything coming up mm-hmm. in, and I've written a new square in my box, which is called, what the fuck is that font? Yeah. <laughs> because it's in a very mash font. It is. <laughs> For no discernible reason. We were going to call it Warport. (laughs) (laughs) It's so bizarre. And it's funny you say that because this film has a really long first act. In fact, most of the film is is first act. Is it too long? The disaster itself is really contained in about the last third. Yeah, there's very little. It's all film and no disaster. For it's, all, it's all build up. It's all build up. You've not mentioned George Kennedy, and I know oh, it's because we got distracted. But can we give him a shout out? Please? Oh, definitely. Uh, I do like a bit of George Kennedy. Yeah, I've never seen so many cigars wasted. <laughs> uh, so it starts in an airport, um, of which Bert Lancaster is the guy in charge. You it's know, the man on the ground. Yeah, the man on the ground. The 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 bridges roll from airport airplane. Yes, the the Lloyd Bridges roll. Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I picked the wrong way to stop sniffing glue. Okay, and, and he's dealing with what I can only describe as a base level of chaos, which is, I would imagine, what airports deal with. Uh, it plus, when? it's snowing, as you know, Jen. There's a sort of proto-extinction <laughs> rebellion protest going on outside. There's some problems with the neighbours complaining about noise. <laughs> that is one of my favourite <laughs> scenes, where the guy is just this, he's saying um, grace before they're about to eat their dinner. And just as he gets to the end of grace, an aeroplane goes over overhead and breaks all of the glasses. Like, it's proper dramatic. Yeah. Like, there's been an earthquake and he goes, Jesus Christ! <laughs> You've basically just described, like, the level of, like, emotion whenever it snows in London. Chaos. Is what you've, yeah, yeah, is what you've just described. Yeah. Are the gritters not out yet? No, I mean, and it's Chicago, so I would imagine... They should have they some should fucking have, gritters. Exactly. Well, I think, they do have I some think Bert explains this later. Yeah, they do have ploughs, but there's a reason they can't be used, which is explained later. And then a plane gets stuck in the snow, and then a suicide bomber arrives. Can we just point out why the plane gets stuck in the snow? The pilot was trying to take a shortcut, shortcut across, across the grass. Yeah. <laughs> We've all done it. Yeah. Whilst in charge of a, um, plane. of a plane. And there's a guy there and he's decided he's going to blow himself up. I mean, he's called a suicide bomber in the plot um, description, or certainly it is on, on, on most places I've seen it. Um, it's another American actor su- called Van. Which it, was, it would suggest that, that he in some way had an ideology and he doesn't. He just wants his... Um, insurance. He just wants the insurance money. He just wants those great businesses. Yeah. And, and, and the weird thing about that is that he has a wife and mm. they seem to be existing in a kind of, um, I don't know, like a, a kitchen sink drama almost, like a Stanislavski <laughs> thing I think that's they're happening. In a, they're in a Tennessee Williams play. Yeah, that's happening on this side while everything else is... It's, it's markedly different, that story, and the way it's acted to the rest of it, which is odd. And then, of course, Burt Lancaster, his character, who is the man on the ground, and Dean Martin's character, who is a pilot in the air, have to deal with what happens when the side of a plane gets blown out in a crisis. I'd been watching Airport for about half an hour, and Gary got home, and he said, what are you watching? I said, I'm watching Airport for Dunleavy Does Disaster. And he said, OK. And I said... Dean Martin is playing a douche. Yeah. <laughs> He's just such a dick. I said, he may be a douche, though, but man, can he fly a plane? <laughs> That's his whole character. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's a total prick. Anyway, so I thought there's a couple of things we could talk about, you know, thematically. Uh, so 
on the one hand we've got women and on the other hand we've got split screen um, depending <laughs> on which one you want to start with you mean on the one side of the screen we've got women and on the In other the side, side we've got split screen we've got, we've got more women being talked over by the first women I mean this is not a good film for women most of them are you know awful as in, you know, not even two-dimensional. Yeah, I was going to say two-dimensional. There's too, too, too many dimensions. Um, and very sort of sexualised. There is a character called Mrs Livingston who I quite like until she decides she's going to run off with Bert Lancaster's character at the end. Spoiler alert. Married character. Yeah. Um, although he has split up with his wife who is just one of those whinging harpies who says, why can't you come home more often? You usually are. Yeah. Um, there's, a, there's a whole split-screen montage yeah. of, of them fighting, having the same argument over and over again. How? And basically, he's been, he's been equally a dick, but yet we're meant to believe it's all her fault. But, but also the row, Jen, mm. right? You hear the voiceover of their current row and it's played over a montage of past rows. Explain it's hilarious. this to me, so to, to me and indeed the listener, because I'm struggling to visualise it. So okay, so you start with if it was like, is it like boxes, like on my bingo card? It, it's all different. Sometimes it's just two people. Sometimes bits come out. And Sometimes it's like a, a cameo circle just appears in the middle of the screen with someone else's face on it. Yeah. And do they all talk over each other? Yeah. Yeah. That's not ideal, is it? It's 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 not. It's a uh, dynamic, Jen. I think okay. that's what they were um, going for. But the rouse over rouse is great. Interestingly, Bert Lancaster and his wife sleep in twin beds. Now, is that something... I can work out whether that was something to do with the prudishness of America still in 1970 or whether it was supposed to be an indication of how loveless their marriage was. I don't know. Um, I'm definitely not scoring any points for pre-disaster shag on my bingo card <laughs> this week. Um because I think it's to do with how prudish they are, because it is quite um, a reserved film, yeah. apart from the bonkersness, which I'm sure you're going to touch on. Uh, what I'm going to get to, the second sort of major female character is uh, and their hostess, as I believe they were known in those days, Trolley Dolly. Mm-hmm. Um, again, as they were known in those days, played by Jacqueline Bisset, who's in her 20s, who's hooked up with Dean Martin, who's in his 50s. Sure. And uh, has got knocked up. He's married as well. He's married. She's been, she's been knocked up by Dean Martin. Yep. She's been knocked up by Dean Martin. And they have a conversation about how she might have an abortion. And despite the fact that she's English, he says, I'll get to Denmark. You'll get one there. No, no, yeah. no. I hear Sweden's the best place. Sweden. Good doctors, good hospitals, medically safe. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas, of course, you know, she could just go home to England because it was legal then. But mm-hmm. anyway, I'm free. Anyway. Do you know what? Do you know why she got pregnant, Jen? Why she stopped taking the pill because they were making uh, gain weight. Making so she fat. does have the brilliant line. So instead of being plump, I'm pregnant. Yeah, we're about to be both lost. Right. So, so then she decides she's not going to have an abortion. What she's going to do is she's going to have the baby and give it up for adoption. And he says, "Oh, I am quite fond of you." And she says, and I quote. That makes all of this a bit easier to bear, the fact that you like me a little bit. Love me a little bit. Love me a little bit. You know, the fact that I'm going to go through nine months and then labour and then... Well, it's all been worth it. Well, the good news is they get together at the end and they walk holding hands past his wife who's gone to meet him and she doesn't even get any resolution at the end of it. Well, it has literally all been worth it then. Her resolution, because she is also, ooh, like kind of little intricacies here. She's actually Burt Lancaster's sister. And she's married to Dean Martin. I don't even know if she's got a name. Mrs. Dean Martin. And um, she says at one point, I just know that one day he'll come home for something other than to change his clothes. So it's good that the women in this film 
have like a lot of things that are positive in their lives. Yeah, they've got a lot of agency, a lot of yeah. self-respect, a lot of yeah. Mrs. Livingston, who seems like a go-getting kind of widow, she's cool, but she's just waiting for Bert Lancaster to even think about leaving his wife. Yeah. So it's 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 not great from that sense. Whereas, hello, split screen is amazing. There's a moment <laughs> in it, Jen, and this will explain how how the how the split screen works. There's a moment in it when they go, somebody call security. And the (laughs) screen splits into about six different light boxes. And and it's all security guards just standing there, like, talking to people. (laughs) And then you hear this announcement that says, uh, and it's one of those, can Mr. Brown come to the porter's office type, you know, emergency announcements that people give out that aren't really a thing. And uh, and they all go, and, like, double take and look up there and rush off. And it is absolutely beautiful. I think the existence of so much split screen in airport is purely to give men more acting jobs. Because <laughs> every time there's a split screen, there's just a bank of men sort of at a computer somewhere who kind of look look like when I call my cat's name. <coughs> it is a prick, but going to do yeah. fuck all about it. Like, it's a wear on them. And they just kind of go, nah. oh. Yeah. And then carry on with their jobs. There's a, there's a great moment in it when the plane depressurizes, and uh, what's he called? Petroni. Yeah, Petroni. No. Uh, George Kennedy's character explains what's going to happen or what would happen if a plane depressurized, and then it happens, and it's nothing like he explained at all. He's basically everyone would be sucked to their death, nobody'd be able to breathe, and basically it's like a small wind blows through. Well, one person is sucked to their death, but well, he was the one who set the bomb off in the first place yes um, um, and he could have been stopped because the customs guy sees him getting on the plane and he says there's just I just sent something in his eyes <laughs> despite the fact he's clutching an attaché yeah, case and they say don't and worry sweating it'll be Rome's problem when he gets there <laughs> yeah. um, is, is how they decide um should we should we switch to the bingo? I've added a few things. I've added three things. I've added what the fuck is that font? Which I'm having. That's number right. one. I've yeah. added dramatic strings, which there was some of this at the start. You know, like da, 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 da. Uh, and I've added screaming cowardice because there's one of those. You know, just a person who literally just runs through the shot screaming. Uh, he also falls into one of my categories as well. What's that? Which is. There is no brilliant plan that can't be fucked up with the addition of people. Well, I was going to put Dudley fucking do right because there's a bit where they get the the bomb off him, and then somebody else says, "You can't take his case," and gives it back to him. Yeah, uh, but and then when I they thought get that it, clashed it... with yours a bit. Um, so I think I've got. Let's have a count. Um, I mean, I, I'm, I'm going to say thing you can't do, meaning you would definitely die in this film. I can't fly a plane, but I don't think that's enough for this because I don't think anyone could fly a plane, could they? I don't think I could wrestle a man with a briefcase to the ground. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so many traffic jams. That's one for me. Yeah, totally. Uh, Cassandra ignored. That's another one. Are there any fancy hairdos gone bad? I don't think there are. Adopt brace position. Classic. Yeah. Air disaster. Yeah. I, I'm on. I'm on six. I think. Unless Dean Martin was ever shamed, but I don't think he has been, has he? No, I don't think so. He just gets to do whatever the fuck he likes because, man, he can fly a plane. Yeah. Um, I have done very poorly on this week's bingo. The three that I added um, were just more when I was thinking about disaster films. 
But there is no brilliant plan that can't be fucked up with the addition of people. It has to go to the guy who, just as they've got the... Just as they've managed to talk the guy out of blowing up the plane, goes, he's got a bomb! And just sort of gets him to resolve to still blow himself up. Um, there's no pre-disaster shag. There's... Is it an ironic death that the only person who dies in the suicide bomb is the suicide bomber? No, not really. Pet survives carnage. Very few pets in this film. In fact, Mm -hmm. none. Gutted. But I have to find my son. No, nature, you cruel mistress. There's a lot of snow, but it's not really the cause of the disaster. Damn bosses. There's definitely some damn bosses. I'm having that. Mid-disaster punch-up. There's a scuffle more than a punch-up. Farewell, major landmark. Fine. Bridge collapse, no. Women and children first, no. Having a one, haven't we already seen this guy in a disaster film? No. This is what happens when we don't all stay together. No. The ones I've added, um, basically based on the Tower and Inferno, was could the title also be a porn film title? Because I think the Tower and Inferno and uh, Deep Impact definitely would score me points on that one. Captain willing to go down with ship slash plane slash building. They kind of are. But yeah. it never, ever gets that worrying. No, it doesn't. You you know that the plane's going to land really safely. It's fine. Uh, so I think I've got four. Okay. I mean, I didn't watch it, but I'm wondering, on the basis of what you've said, piss poor English accent? No, no. she's actually... Oh, she's actually English. Yeah, Sometimes, yeah. actually, English people do have piss poor English accents. Oh, yeah, accents like the woman who though. played Daphne in Fraser. Yeah. Supposed to be from Manchester. Or Sean Maguire in that weird sitcom that used to be on ITV at, like, midnight. I used to watch it when I was a student. I was like, why do you talk like that? You're English. Anyway, Irish, but, you know, English accent. Anyway, so many helicopters. Any helicopters, guys? I don't think there no, were. No, no helicopters. Um, provably bad science. There's got to be a weather geek, right? No. It's not even a fucking... Right. Um, no. Does this disaster saved our relationship count if it then ruined someone else's in the process? Yeah, yeah. it kind of does, yeah. Okay. Um, is there a sobbing child? That's one I've added. There, there is a child on this, um, and it's almost a direct lift from the, ch- the, the again the child in airplane is almost a. It looks exactly the same, and the Helen Hayes character in airplane looks exactly the same. Um, maybe. Well, I mean, I, I, I don't watch it. I don't deserve to win. Okay. I can live with that. Okay. In that case, I win. Way! What are you choosing? What are you choosing? Uh, oh, what do I want to watch? Should we stay in the 70s? No, let's do something reasonably recent. Um, oh, well, we're talking about Extinction Rebellion and stuff like that, weren't we? Should we do the day after tomorrow? Because well, I've never seen oh, that. You, you will have... Uh, but I me. need to find my son, and you will have Weather Geek. So you both <laughs> get a point. Awesome. Yeah. I think it could be a porn film title. (laughs) Standard issue for all women.